0: So the question for the past couple of weeks is what is your one thing? What is the one thing you would want your life to be known for? The one thing above all other things that you want people to know about you? I said at the very beginning, I wanted my one thing to be Jesus's one thing. I want my one thing to be the same thing that Jesus would say is his one thing. And so we've looked at this verse every single week. Let's look at it one more time. It's from the book of Mark, chapter 12. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Jesus and the other guys were debating. Noting that Jesus had given a good answer, he asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one one and then he keeps going he says love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength the second is this love your neighbor as yourself there is no commandment greater than these and i've been emphasizing for the past few weeks that it's one commandment in three separate parts who is god we need to love god we need to love our neighbor as ourselves it's like three different things it's two different things it's it's just one thing and so Today, we come to the end of the first one that Jesus calls the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. We come to the one about strength. Now, this is interesting. I think the conversation about strength is really kind of fascinating. But before I jump into that, I want to step backwards to last week just a little bit. So last week I encouraged you to love God with all of your mind. And I went through a couple different things to try to illustrate to you that loving God with our mind means to discipline our minds to learn the things we need to learn, to understand the things we need to understand, and to think through the things of this world in a way that's appropriate. And the problem is that too often as I said last week, Christians get in this idea that there is the world's knowledge and there's Christian knowledge, and we should ignore the world and everything it has to say and just pay attention to Christian stuff. And so last week I was trying to illustrate how flawed that reasoning is, and one of the ways I illustrated how flawed that reasoning is, is by sharing that there are some Christian thoughts that are just simply false. They're just simply wrong. They're just simply outside of God's will altogether. Last week I called them myths. And there are other things that Christians believe. And if you lock yourself away from the world out here, then you might just only believe these things and find yourself in all kinds of trouble. And I mentioned a couple things in particular that are kind of some myths that people believe from the Old Testament. I had a a fellow reach out to me through Facebook this last week asking me a question about that. And he was like, I am having my mind blown, he said. Because you just challenged something that I have always thought was true, and now I'm thinking it's not true, and so I'm wondering what else is not true? What else is there that I should doubt? And I gave him a pretty quick answer that I wanted to share with you today. The long, detailed answer I spent last week writing up in a series of blog posts on my personal blog site. That's jeffmichaels.org. I put a lot of energy into writing these rather long articles to try to deal with all that stuff in depth. But today I'm going to give you the short answer. And the short answer goes like this. If the foundation of your belief, if the foundation of your faith, is on anything other than the resurrection of Jesus then your foundation is on sinking or shifting sand. Because there are all kinds of things that we can learn in Scripture and all kinds of things that the world around us is going to help us learn about the things that we know and all of that stuff. But there's one thing that is firm, solid, and absolutely bedrock. That is the resurrection of Jesus. If you say Jesus rose from the dead, then everything else falls into place. Because if there's a guy who predicts his own death and resurrection and then pulls it off, that's the guy you pay attention to. Muhammad is still in the grave, as is every other leader who has ever lived in all of history. Either they are alive now or they are still in their grave. Jesus, on the other hand, is unique. He's the one who walked out. And so you start with that. You start with the resurrection. You start with the understanding. Then if the resurrection is real, then that means Jesus was telling us something real. And now we pay attention to what Jesus says. And then we pay attention to what his first followers had to say about Jesus and what he said. And then we look at the Old Testament context for how that informs us in our understanding of what Jesus' followers say about what Jesus taught and all of that. So the Old Testament gives context. It doesn't give foundation just a quick comment about that. There are a lot of people who will say to you something like this. Everything in the Bible has to be accepted by you as literal truth. And if you don't accept it as literal truth, then you have undermined the authority of the Bible. And therefore, you no longer can call yourself a Christian. And I want to tell you it's entirely backwards. Christians don't start with the authority of the Bible that then leads us to the resurrection of Jesus. Christians start with the resurrection of Jesus that leads us to understand the authority of God's word. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing Jesus said made sense, and all of the stuff in the Old Testament also therefore doesn't make sense. And so, as Paul would say, you can throw out the entire Bible if the resurrection didn't happen. But if the resurrection happened, then everything else feeds into that. And so all that to say, we build our foundation on Jesus and him alone. And then everything else gets layered on top of his shoulders because he can take it. And if you later on learn that something way up here is different from what you thought it was, that's a thing that you're okay letting fall off because the foundation is Jesus. And if you want more details about that, you can look at my blog articles from this last week or just connect with me personally and let's dig into it a little bit more personal because this is, my, this is like my, my soapbox. I want people to be all about Jesus and I want them to put all of their hope and their heart onto him. But that was last week talking about loving God with our minds. Today, we're gonna talk about loving God with our strength. And what's fascinating about strength is a couple things, really. Number one, in the list of things that Jesus tells us we're supposed to love God with, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, strength is the only one that can possibly be visible. Right? You can't love God with your heart and have other people see that. I mean, you can fake it, but then it's not loving God with your heart. You can't love God with all your soul and have other people see that. You don't even understand your soul. You can't love God with your mind and have other people see it. Yeah, you might eventually write something or speak something, but that's using your strength to do that. Your heart, your soul, your mind, all those things are internal. Strength is the only one of these things that crosses the line between you and not you. Strength is the one that takes your love for God and puts it out into the world. And we have a weird relationship with strength. Because our problem is that sometimes we feel strong, and in those moments, we don't need God. Because I feel strong, I don't need God in this moment. I don't need God for this particular thing. I'm just gonna do the thing that I know to do because I feel strong in it. And then sometimes we feel weak and in our weakness, then we'll finally come to God and we'll say, God, I need your, and we say the word, strength. God, I need your strength to help me through this situation. I need your strength. So when we are strong, we forget about God. And when we are weak, we forget about doing anything for God. Because we are just saying, okay, God, what are you going to do for me to give me strength? And what we do in those moments is we treat God as the strength vending machine God. And I want you to know that God's desire is different for you. God's desire is different from you. The idea I want us to be thinking about is just this broad question. What should I do with the power I actually do have? What should I do with the strength I have? Because it doesn't matter how weak you are, you have some strength. Let me show you this passage from Judges. It's one of these amazing passages from the Old Testament. Lots of people know it. Lots of people will quote parts of it. This is Gideon, a judge, one of the first judges in the book of Judges. And he is going to become the leader of Israel, but he's not now. Right now, he's a coward. He is hiding in a wine press, threshing some wheat because he doesn't want the enemies to see the wheat being threshed, come in, kill him, take the wheat and move on. So he's hiding. And we come across the passage and it says this, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, which of course is an, is a weird thing. Because Gideon has never been to war. He has always been just this coward type person. The Lord is with you, great coward. The Lord is with you, scaredy cat. The Lord is with you. No, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. A thing that isn't true yet, but God knows will be. And that's that's a fascinating thing. A fascinating thing that God can see who you are before you know who you are. But keep going. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, notice there he he changes it from with me to us. He's now asking God a deep question. If God really were with his people, if God is with us, why has all this happened to us? If God is so good, why am I going through this hardship? If God is so loving, why do I have to thresh this wheat in the wine press? He is a wine And he says, where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Keep going. It says this, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have, mighty whiner, and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord. Sorry. Sorry. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Before you go on, he thinks about his weakness, right? But what does God think? God thinks about two things. One, his potential. And two, that no matter how weak he is, there is some strength there. God doesn't say, go in all your mightiness. He says, go in the strength that you have. Start with what you got and just move in the direction I'm leading you. I'm sending you somewhere. Go in the strength you have. And now he whines. He says, but but I'm weak. I'm too weak. And God says this. This is how it ends. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And it's that key line. God says, I will be with you. The thing that changes Gideon from whiner to warrior is that God is with him and sees something in him. And God knows that the strength he's got is just a little seed that needs to be cultivated and nourished and expanded to become mighty warrior. One of the weirdest things about the human body is that you have the exact same fundamental makeup as Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno, The Rock, any one of these giant, beefy dudes. You have the same makeup in you as Eliud Kipchugi, the guy who recently ran a marathon in under two hours, setting the absolute world record that no one ever thought would ever happen. You have the same relative makeup in you. The difference between any of those guys and you, aside from some extreme genetics in one respect, but the main difference between any of those guys and you is that they have cultivated the strength that they have. And you and I, maybe we haven't. I am utterly fascinated by the fact that this muscle right here could be, could be as large as the rocks muscle right here. And the only difference when it comes to these muscles, is that one of us has worked them more. One of us has done the work and the other one of us has not. I'm not mighty warrior because I'm weak. I'm not mighty warrior because I haven't done the work. God says to Gideon, take the strength you've got and go. So what I want to do Today, I want to help you kind of understand what it means to love God with all your strength. And today's not going to be so much of an understanding day. It's going to be a little bit more of a a practical advice kind of day. I'm going to give you three general recommendations for how I think you can love God with your strength and the kinds of things that need to be present in your life for you to think about as you're loving God with all of your strength. And the first one of those is this kind of idea that shows up in Christian circles a lot is to glorify God. I think what you need to do is you need to glorify God. The idea is I want to love God with all of my strength, and so I'm going to glorify God. Well, what does that mean? Christians use that phrase all the time. I remember I've been in church after church where their mission statement is, we exist to glorify God by making disciples across the street and around the world, or something like that. And it was really hit for the longest time for them to add the line glorify God into all of these different things. And I want to start with this idea that even though I just said glorify God, you need to know what that means before we go any deeper. First of all, glory refers to the thing that makes someone better than someone else. That's what glory is. The Old Testament word glory literally just meant heavy. It meant weighty and it was used in a lot of different metaphorical contexts to refer to the person who had the most weight, the most significance, the most going on. And so in some cases a really fat guy could be glorious because he was very weighty. Um, But usually in that society the only people who were fat were the people who were rich the people who had enough money that they had extra food that then they could consume without needing to work it off. And so fat people were usually rich people, which then made them glorious in another sense. And God has used this word heavy weighty to refer to himself. And you need to know that basically it's just this general word that means better than anyone else. So, God has more wealth, more power, more intellect, more insight, more wisdom than anyone else. He is glorious. He is more than anyone else. And if that's the case, then there's nothing you've got that He needs. The most fundamental thing to understand about God's glory is that He's got it all, He already is glorious. And when I tell you you need to glorify God, I am not saying that you need to increase his glory. He's got it to the max. He's already infinitely glorious. There's nothing you can do that makes him more glorious. There is something, though, that we can do. We can help someone else realize it. We can help someone else know it. We can help someone else get it and understand it. And so when I say glorify God, I mean two things. And the first thing that I mean by that is that I want you to understand for me to glorify God is to display his glory. There's going to be something about me, something that's true in my life where I'm going to demonstrate I'm going to display the glory of God. The people around me can't see the glory of God. I can't even see the glory of God, but I know about it. And so I can display it to other people, and then they can know about it too. Let me show you a couple verses. This one, the first one comes from Matthew quoting Jesus. And the second one will come from Peter quoting Jesus, kind of. He doesn't actually put it in quotation marks. Matthew does. But this is what it says in Matthew chapter 5. It says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Interesting phrase there, right? Now, these other people in the world, they don't know that God is infinitely glorious. They don't know that. And so they might act in a way that's like, oh no, I want to I I tell God he's great. I want to tell God he's awesome. I want to tell God he's wonderful. And what prompts these other people to say to God that He's wonderful? They saw something in you. Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they will glorify God. It's weird. So often we think that we are the Christians, we need to glorify God, and yet Jesus gives us instructions for how we should get other people to glorify God. People don't even know God, they're just out there in the world. And there's something that you and I can do that makes them say, huh, that God they're always talking about kind of sounds cool. That's glorifying God even though you don't know him. But look at what Peter says. Peter says something almost exactly the same thing in chapter two. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter adds one extra little line there, on the day he visits us. And I think this is fascinating. I I get the idea that what Peter is saying is that one of these days, God's showing up. One of these days, Jesus is returning and the judgment of God is gonna fall on this earth. And when the judgment of God falls on this earth, the people in your life are either going to be freaked out because they're getting judged, or they're going to be overjoyed because they have encountered the glory of God face to face. And you, what you do today, and what I do today, can put a person in a position where on that final day of judgment, they're in the place of glory to God, and not in the place of fear of God. And what is the thing that you and I can do today to help put them in that place at the end of time, glorifying God? What is it? Is it sharing our faith with them? Is it witnessing to them? Is it telling them that they're going to hell unless they accept Jesus into their heart? Or is it what Peter said, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us? Weird, I know! But both Jesus and Peter, both Matthew and Peter, quoting the teaching of Jesus, are telling us that your primary job to bring glory to God, who already is glorious, but your primary job to bring glory to God is to get others to bring glory to God by just doing good stuff. And then the people around you see the good stuff and they're like, whoa, whoa, something different is better about them. Uh, They're different people and they're better people and it must be something outside of this earth that makes them better. I want to ask you to ask yourself a question with regard to any activity you do. The question goes like this. Will the world around me see this action as something glorious? Will the world around me see this action as something glorious? Because our actions represent the glory of God. Will the world see this action as something glorious? Um, we actually have a couple things in Scripture where we are taught what to do, what actions might be glorious. I picked up kind of a random one from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, also Matthew chapter 5. We looked at it already. Let's look at a couple more verses there. Matthew chapter 5, 33 says this, Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now, hold on a second here. The idea was that sometimes you can break a promise, but never break a promise to God. And Jesus says, you've heard people say this before. Yeah, don't break your oath, but really don't break an oath to God. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to tell you something different. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem. Don't swear an oath at all. Keep going. It says, for Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And sometimes people get all uptight. And they're like, okay, so Jesus says don't ever swear. Don't ever use a swear word. No, that's not what he's saying. And then other people are like, don't ever promise to tell the truth or something, you know, because that promise, you might actually break that promise and then you're going to be in trouble. No, 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 that's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying is, let your yes be yes. Bottom line, your word should be good. That's what he's saying. He's not saying don't ever swear. He's saying you don't ever need to swear. There was a commercial on when I was a kid. And it was like E.F. Hutton. I don't even remember what that was, but it was some kind of commercial where like everybody was making a whole lot of noise. And then all of a sudden everybody got quiet because this other dude was talking. And it was like when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. And it was just amazing because my, the reason I remembered it is because I was always one of the talkers. And so my parents and my teachers always tried to use that to make me shut my mouth and be like, you know, hey, be quiet because, you know, there's someone else is talking here. But Jesus is like almost doing that. He's like, if you say something, everybody around you should just be like, if they're saying something, it must be true. Now, what has to happen in this world for there to be someone that everyone sees as authentic and honest and trustworthy? Can you name one person that everyone views as authentic and honest and trustworthy? No. I don't know a single name. Like maybe some people thought Mother Teresa was that, but she's passed. Maybe some people view the Pope as that, but other people don't. Can you think of anyone that everyone thinks is authentic and true and trustworthy? No. Such a shame. But Jesus says that should be us. That should be us. We're the people who should be authentic and true and trustworthy. And when you say yes, everyone knows you mean yes. And when you say no, everyone knows that you mean no. And it's not just that you mean it now, it's that you always mean it. That your word is gold. But if you read just another verse farther from where we just were in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41 says this. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Imagine the generosity of that person who says, it doesn't matter what you ask from me, I'm going to go beyond. I'm going to give you even more. Let me me put it to you this way. I asked you earlier to ask yourself the question, will this action be perceived by the world as glorious? And now I want to give you an idea Just imagine what the world would think if you were 100% honest at every moment and you were generous in those moments. Imagine that combination, just these two things. There are so many other things I could mention, but just imagine these two things, that there's a person on this planet who is 100% honest and generous what would the world think of that person? Would they think that that person was special? Would they think that person was somehow different from the rest of us? Would they think that that person was somehow, in some way, representing something glorious? And then if they found out that that person was a believer in Jesus Christ, what do you think they would think about Jesus if you said, the entire reason I am the person I am is because of what Jesus told me to do. And I'm just living that way. What would the world look like if we were honest and generous? Just those two characteristics all by themselves might transform the world. I want to love God with my strength. And so I want to glorify God by living in a glorious way in this world around me. But let's keep going because that when you read the minor prophets, they push us in ways. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. They push us in some ways, but it's not good enough to just simply say, I'm going to display the glory of God. There has to be something else that's true about me on the inside. Let me give it to you this way. Write this down. It says, for me to glorify God is for me to live toward his glory. I don't have another word for this. Toward is the best word that I could come up with, but it basically goes like this. I want to glorify God, and He already is glorious. So I can't add to His glory, but what I can do is I can step my way closer to His glory. I can move in the direction of His glory. Let me show you a couple verses for this. From 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, your strength, whatever it is, do for the glory of God keep going. Paul also says this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 and also 23. He says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. You see, this idea is that I'm going to use what strength I have to move myself in the direction of God's glory by just putting my whole heart into it, putting my whole effort into it, giving it everything I've got. Because when I give it everything I've got, I have the mindset that I'm not doing it for me. I'm not doing it for my boss. I'm not doing it for the people around me. Yeah, there are going to be moments when I'm doing what I'm doing because I want the world around me to see it and glorify God. But there are other moments when I'm doing what I'm doing just because it's what God would have me do. Whatever you do, Do it for the glory of God. For your own moving in his direction. Do it for the glory of God. So, I want to ask you to make kind of a personal commitment. You ask yourself the question, does this decision move me in the direction of God's glory? And then you make this personal commitment. You say, with all my strength, I will work for God's glory. Jesus says, love the Lord with all your strength. Okay, so here we go. With all my strength, I'm going to work for God's glory. Now, there are two other things that I want to give you here. And the next one does come from the um, minor prophets. Because it's one thing for us to speak in abstract terms. I'm going to work really hard to bring God glory. But the problem with that way of thinking is that you and I get to determine what that is, right? I asked you to ask yourself questions. So who's giving you the answers? you, right? I asked you to ask yourself some questions. Will this bring glory to God? Will this bring me closer to God? All those kinds of questions. But you're the one who's answering it. And sometimes someone else needs to just tell you what to do. And that's where the minor prophets show up. They're like, okay, it's fine. You've tried to answer these questions for yourself. Now I'm just going to give you the answers you need. Take a look at this. It's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, he has shown you O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The idea here is that there are some things that God wants you and me to do that we're never going to get to by answering our own questions. If I answer my own questions, I'm going to stay largely within my own comfort zone. But God tells me, what I need to do is I need to do justice and love mercy. I want to challenge you with a thought that, you know, I don't even know how well it's going to go over, but I just want to challenge you with a historical fact from the last week. Okay? Something to think about. This last week, President Biden issued a pardon for all people who had been convicted of federal marijuana possession. They'd been convicted of marijuana possession under federal law. If someone had been convicted convicted under state law, this pardon doesn't apply to them because the president doesn't have pardon power over states and state imprisonments and state laws and stuff. But if anyone had been convicted of marijuana possession under federal law, this last week they got pardoned. Now, there's only like 20 or so people who got pardoned from that. But when you hear that story, I don't want you to react to me right now. What I want you to do is just react in your own heart and ask yourself if you liked that idea. Or if you like that idea that our president would issue a pardon for people who were convicted of marijuana possession. Now listen, Christians have a long history of being all uptight about the, the things that other people put in their bodies. It was Christians who largely created prohibition. And then, uh, it was Christians who were a lot behind the war on drugs that showed up in the late, you know, later 20th century. And so Christians today have this real, you know, hatred of doing drugs and stuff. And, and so maybe when I talk about President Biden pardoning people for marijuana possession, maybe there's a part of you that's just like, oh, we should never... It's a drug thing, you know. We should uh, we should we should punish those people. And maybe there are other people in the room here, and you're just like you're just a law-abiding person. It doesn't care. You don't care if it's drugs or anything else. It's just a law. If someone breaks a law, they uh, they should be mm, put them away. That if they just broke a law, it's their own fault. It's their own issue. Maybe some of you are justice people like that. And so I read the passage from Micah, and it says to do justly. And you're like, yes, we need to do justice all over people. And we just need to we just need to let the justice fall on their heads in so many like strong ways. And you forget that justice means two things. Justice doesn't mean punishment only. Justice also means equity it means lifting people up when they are oppressed. It means doing the right thing for the people who are in the wrong place. It means helping another person step up out of where they are so that they can stand on an equal plane with the rest of everybody else. Justice doesn't just mean punish the evildoer. Justice also means lift up the oppressed. And what's fascinating is that there's a second word. It's not just to do justice. It's also To love mercy. And so, if the prophet wanted you to just be all up in arms about, you know, we've got to bash these people and knock them down and punish them and hurt them, he would not have added the other word to it mercy. In other words, he says, I want you to do the work of justice that's merciful. And so, I want to ask you when you hear about a president who simply decides to stop punishing people for a wrong that they've done. Does your heart resonate yea, or err? And sadly for Christians, I think far too often our resonance in our hearts is in the direction of vengeance, even though Romans 12 told us this. Romans 12, verse 19, it says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And don't get me wrong. I read that last line. I'm like, oh, yeah. Burning coals, burning coals. I've got to dump the burning coals on their heads. I'm going, to be, I'm going to kill them with kindness. You've heard that phrase before? I'm going to be so nice to them that they just feel embarrassed and ashamed and they're so, just, they're so just aware of their own sin because of how nice I've been to them. I'm just going to kill them with kindness, burning coals. And it's like, no, that's not the point. The whole point was, let God do the judgment So whatever this burning coals metaphor means, and I don't have time to dig into it today, but whatever that burning coals metaphor means, it doesn't mean revenge. And the very next line (laughs) says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This last uh, summertime, I watched the Stranger Things series four on Netflix. And there's this one part of the show where like uh, this one guy is really scared of this other guy in town. And so the one guy who's scared of the other guy goes into a meeting of the whole town, all the townspeople are in this meeting. And this guy accuses this guy of just being evil. And then he says, and we need to overcome evil with good. And the implication is, all y'all people are good, and your guns are also good, so let's overcome the evil with all our good. And so then the rest of the show, they chase down this guy, and they're going to try to kill this guy, because you want to overcome evil with good. And that is a, And they quote this verse, they put this verse on the screen, and I'm like, mm. What would it look like? What would it look like if Christians actually lived in the way of mercy? Oh yeah, we'd worry a lot about that other person's going to take advantage of us. We'd worry a lot. You know, if I'm a person of mercy, you know what might happen? Someone else might take advantage of me someone else. I might find myself in danger you know worst case scenario i might get my hands and my feet nailed to a big block of wood and held up in front of a whole bunch of people till i die i don't ever want that to happen right it's a bummer that following jesus includes crucifixion it's a joy that following jesus includes resurrection So yes, what does it mean to love God with all my strength? Sometimes it means to hold back on the work of judgment and to start stepping into the work of justice and to step into the work of mercy. I want to ask you to take this commitment, and it is to say this, with all of my strength, I will work for the weak. With all of my strength, I will work for the weak. One of my favorite passages in scripture comes from Isaiah 58, where God says, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, then will your light rise in the darkness. And I want to be a person. I want to be a person whose light shines in the darkness. I want to be a person who people around me can see and be like, let's glorify God because of all the light shining through that person's life. And he's given us the recipe that we need to spend ourselves for the hungry. Jesus says this in Matthew 25, one of the scariest passages of all, but also one of the most encouraging passages. In Matthew 25, Jesus says this, the king, talking about himself in the day of judgment, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepares for you since the creation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink I was a stranger and you let me in let's go to the next one I was a stranger and you invited me in it's not working there it goes it didn't work at all let's go back to that and there it is I was a stranger and you invited me in I needed clothes and you clothed me I was sick and you looked after me I was in prison and you came to visit me then the righteous will answer him Lord, when did we do all this stuff? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Let's go to the next one. Or thirsty and give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. We are called to be people who love God with all of our strength. And that means to love God in a way that brings glory from the world around me. And that also means to love God in a way that draws me closer to his glory. And that also means to use all of my strength to lift up the weak. Because when I do it for the weak, I'm doing it for him. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the glory of Jesus. And so when I lift up the weak, I am both glorifying him and I'm also doing his work. But there's one last uh, bit of recommendation that I want to give to you. And it's the one that I hinted at earlier, but I want to make explicit. It is to share the good news. And uh, oftentimes when you hear a pastor talk about sharing the good news, what he means is knock on your neighbor's door and tell your neighbor they're going to hell unless they receive Jesus into their heart. And you can do that right now with them. That's oftentimes what people mean when they say sharing the good news. And let's be clear about this. If you do that and you skip the you're going to hell line, but you do everything else, then I will pat you on the back. And I will say, this person just helped their neighbor understand God better. And so if you knock on your neighbor's door, and you share some good news with them, I will be like, yes, but first, let's understand what the good news is, and what it means to share it. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, Jesus says, you will receive power. Oh, yeah, power. That's what we wanted from the very beginning, right? I want some power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses, right? You've heard that before. You understand that idea. You, you, you've you grasped it before. We're supposed to be his witnesses. But you've got to be clear about this. What does it mean to be his witness? That means I'm going to represent him. That means I'm going to talk about him. That means I'm going to help other people see him. This has nothing to do with me standing on a corner yelling at people. This has nothing to do with me holding up a picket sign in a line protesting something that's going on in the world. If Jesus yelled at people from the street corner, then do it. If Jesus held up a picket sign in front of some establishment, then do it. If Jesus got on social media and declared a boycott over some other social media, then fine, do it. Problem is, he didn't. Jesus consistently was one of these guys that the religious people were like, oh, he is not religious enough for us. And the sinful people were like, wow, I like this guy. So if I'm going to be his witness, then that means I have to demonstrate the goodness of his news. Put it this way. How we live and what we say testifies to the goodness of our news to the goodness of our news. Yes, Scripture tells us that judgment awaits those who have not received the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. No, Scripture never tells us that that's our marketing plan. It never tells us that that's the the tactic we use to convince the world that they need to come to Jesus. Do you realize Jesus never once said to a sinful person, you better watch out, you're going to hell. What he did is he said it to the religious people. He said to the religious people, you better watch out, the fire of hell is burning right in your soul right now. He says, woe to you Pharisees, how will you not escape the fire of hell? Those are the people that he was uptight about. Those are the people that he used scathing words against. But his life, his behavior, it testified to the goodness of his news. If you really believe that Jesus loves literally everyone, and your life represents that, someone's going to see it, and they're going to be like, whoa. If you really believe that Jesus is offering eternal life to literally everyone, then you're going to act differently. And people are going to see that, and they're going to be like, whoa. And if you really believe that the love of God is at work in this world and is destined to win, then you're going to act differently from the rest of the world. And the people around you are going to see that, and they're going to be like, whoa. A good message should affect us first and then flow from us to the rest of the world. But let me show you this other very famous passage from Matthew 28. It says this. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. There are a lot of times that Christians have this idea that what our job is, is that we're supposed to go into all the world and convert people to Christianity. And Jesus didn't say that. What he said was, make them disciples. And then you and I think, "Okay, so a disciple is a church-going person who's studying the word of God. And that's not what Jesus meant when he said it. Jesus wasn't saying, I want you to get them to attend church every week. And I want you to give them, get them to give money to the church religiously. And he wasn't talking about all those things. He uses the word disciple in the same way he used the word disciple years earlier when he called the 12 disciples. And the word disciple means, come and follow me. Come and be with me. Come and learn to be like me. What he says to you and me is that our job, yes, we're supposed to live out his witness in this world. And then when someone begins to respond, we're supposed to embrace them and be like, oh, come on in. We're all going to be like Jesus together. And we're going to teach you everything that he taught us. And we're all going to look like Jesus together because he's with us even to the end of the age. Write it down this way. The goal isn't more people who just pray a prayer. The goal is more people who look like Jesus. The goal is more people who look like Jesus. And so I want to ask you to make this little commitment. It says, with all my strength, I will live for the imitation of Jesus, in myself and in others. I'll live for the imitation of Jesus. Now, put all these things together. And The command is, love God with all your strength. And I've given you three kinds of ideas for how to love God with all your strength. With all my strength, I'm gonna live for God's glory. With all my strength, I'm going to to lift up the cause of the weak. With all of my strength, I am gonna be a person who who strives for the imitation of Jesus in myself and in the lives of others. With all my strength, I wanna do these things. But there's one little problem left over. And there's some people in this room who might think that. There are definitely a lot of people in the world around us who would think that, and Christians in the world around us. And they would say it sounds a lot like works-based religion. It sounds a lot like you've got to do this and, this and this and this and this and this to make God happy with you. And let's just get all the way back to the beginning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's nothing in that line that says, and this is what you do to get him to love you. Nothing in that line that says, and this is how you convince God to love you. It doesn't show up. The Lord just is. He just is. He is, he is. And you can't make him do more or less than who he is. He is all glory. He is all love. He is all knowledge. He is all wisdom. He is who he is. You can't get him to love you anymore. He already loves you enough to die for you. This is not about you getting God to love you. This is about loving him. This isn't a works religion thing. This is just simply love. I want to love God with my heart, my soul, and my mind. I want to love God with my strength. And loving God with my strength means some things are going to show up. So, is this a works-based thing? No. It's love. And I want us to keep that in mind. I want us to keep that in mind. That my calling, my goal is to love God. And this is one way, three ways to love God. Now, I don't know where this settles down with you today. I'm not sure exactly which one of these things resonates with you the most. I'm not sure uh, which one of these ideas is the one you need to work on the most, or if there's something else I didn't talk about at all today. But what I want to do is just remember that one little line at the end where Jesus says, I'm with you always. I'm with you always. It's the same line at the beginning where Gideon was in the wine press and God says, I want you to go in the strength that you have because I'm with you, because I will be with you. The idea that God is with us changes everything. When we leave this place today, we're leaving this building, but we are not leaving God's presence. And when you encounter the difficult people in this world this week, you are encountering difficult people, but you are encountering them with the presence of God in and around you. And in every one of these moments that we have an opportunity to share God with other people, to glorify God, to to love God, we might be doing that in the presence of other people. And we can. We have all the strength that we need because God is with us. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.